0: words there but the point is
1: that it's a yeah, screenshot. Exactly. Good morning.
2: Good morning and welcome to the uh, second session of the Jefferson Symposium on free speech on campus sponsored by the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression. Mm-hmm and also sponsored by our local chapters of the American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society. Uh, Our topic this morning, we have two panels. The topic for the first panel is free speech in the modern university, although it seems to me it might better be called the view from the front office. Uh, We have a law school dean and two university presidents. Uh, I'd like to say that I uh, do not envy their responsibility. Academic leaders, if they're good, are are concerned with strategic planning and and visionary ideals of the future. But such efforts are often crashed and sidelined by unpredictable and sometimes bizarre local events that arouse passions and monopolize attention. Of course, a leader must be prepared to deal with the unexpected, but how one is prepared to deal with the unexpected seems to me not at all clear. Uh, consider, for example, the fate of a university president. She's sitting right down there. Uh, <laughs> after an adjunct faculty member, uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Douglas Muir, pops off about Black Lives Matter. According to the Daily Progress, Mr. Muir posted a comment on Facebook after a Black Lives Matter event held downtown in Charlotte, saying, Black Lives Matter is the biggest racist, misspelled, Organization, misspelled. Since the clan, misspelled. Um, <laughs> are you kidding me? Uh, disgusting. And the reaction on campus was um, not welcoming. Now, quite apart from the, from the questions of, I'd hesitate to say literacy, it might be a problem of typos, but uh, quite apart from the question of bad typing, The question of how one deals with such expressions of sentiments, or if one deals with them as a university official, must keep administrators up at night. And both the frequency and the difficulty of responding to situations of that sort is made much worse, it seems to me, by the world of digital communication. Electronic communication is instantaneous, and it greatly facilitates thoughtless statements. The virtue of delay, which people of my generation grew up with, if you drafted a letter, you then had to do something before you actually sent it off, and I know in my case, I ditched a good number, probably uh, not enough, but the mediation of that delay is is gone. Now, I don't know, Mr. Muir, but I can find it easy to imagine that at least the tone of his message might have been different if it had not gone out on the fly. And today, all of our messages go out on the fly, with a consequent rise in the temperature and a falling off of restraint. And the social media have created both a means of unfiltered and instantaneous communication and a fast-moving and unpredictable environment of reaction. And in that world, the place of a senior academic administrator has become a hot seat tell us how to confront such questions, we have uh, three (laughs) guests. I'm going to start with um, uh, Terry Sullivan to my far right. She is my boss, or I should say one of my bosses, at the University of Virginia. Terry became the eighth president of the university in 2010. She has a long career in academic administration. Immediately before coming to us, she was the provost of the University of Michigan. Before that, she built a national reputation as a sociologist, mostly in the field of labor demography, but also has done very prominent work in consumer bankruptcy, and I think that connection led to something I learned only last night, which is that she had an appointment as a professor of law at the University of Texas. Uh, Terry, it's a particular uh, pleasure to welcome you here. Another academic leader who has opined on these issues is Jeffrey Herbst, now the president and CEO of the... Museum, that's an interactive uh, Museum of journalism in Washington, and it's allied with the Museum Institute, which is its outreach arm. And these organizations uh, promote and defend free expression. They have a very elaborate parentage which in terms of the financing, which reads like a who's who of great American publishers, including the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Knight newspapers, the Annenberg Foundation, The New York Times, Bloomberg, Comcast, and Hertz. Uh, Jeffrey Herbst is not only uh, a representative and an extremely knowledgeable one of uh, the industry of journalism and its concerns, but before taking that position, he was the president of Colgate University. And so has direct academic experience as well. And the person nearest to me up front is Vikram Amar, who is dean of the University of Illinois College of Law and an expert in constitutional law and civil procedure. We recruited Vic for this symposium because he's published on issues very closely related to what we're talking about here today, including academic freedom, and also on interesting free speech issues, including the boundaries of free speech in campus protests. Vic knows more than most of us, at least he knows more than people of my generation about free speech in the world of digital communication. He publishes a bi-weekly column on justicia.com, which leads him to comment frequently on issues before the public. And of course, now he bears academic leadership responsibilities as a dean. Our thanks to all of these distinguished guests. President Sullivan. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, John, and good morning, everyone. As John intimated, I'm no expert on free speech. I'm thrust into this forum by virtue of my job. But I have some reflections I want to share with you, and I'm going to start by talking about two recent incidents that occurred here at UVA. Well, I'm going to try to anyway. Yes, here we go. Thank you. Okay, thank you. There we go. So in this incident, the UVA men's basketball team, without their coach present and on their own initiative, posed for a photograph, kneeling with their arms locked to express their shared opposition to injustice and their support for equality. Several of the players posted the photo on their own social media with the caption, kneel for injustice, kneel for equality. Subsequently, their photo and message became connected to a larger national story that began with NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's decision to kneel during the national anthem at football games. Several professional and college athletes followed his lead, protesting the national anthem in various ways across the country. UVA's basketball players were neither protesting the national anthem And in fact, they weren't even wearing their UVA uniforms in the photo. As you can see, they dressed in dark clothing. They didn't organize this kneel-down moment during a game. The flag wasn't present. The national anthem wasn't being played. But in spite of these distinctions, many people connected their photo to the Kaepernick movement. So following negative responses to the photo, UVA's head basketball coach issued a statement saying, Our guys realize there are a lot of issues going on in our country. I support their desire to promote peace and equality. Of course the players have a right to free speech but UVA was attacked for failing to discipline them and for standing up for their right to speak freely. Now in the second incident which occurred last week and which you just heard about we were attacked for the opposite reason. A Douglas Muir, a UVA lecturer who teaches in two of our schools, posted a comment on Facebook calling the Black Lives Movement racist and comparing the movement to the Ku Klux Klan. Students and other members of the community expressed outrage at Muir's statement. Our provost and the deans of the two schools in which Muir teaches issued statements. Their statements supported the principle of free speech but expressed disagreement with Muir's statement and argued his opinions did not express the views of the university in this incident UVA was attacked for failing to protect Muir's right to free speech and we were falsely accused of two things forcing him out of his job when in fact he voluntarily took leave and forcing him to apologize he did issue a lengthy statement of apology but we didn't make him do it we didn't dictate it we didn't see it until he issued it So these two incidents are symptomatic of a well-established narrative about higher education. And the narrative is that universities support free speech only when it's convenient to do so, that we support free speech when the opinions expressed agree with ours, but that we suppress free speech if the opinions expressed are inconsistent with our own beliefs. And even when we behave differently from this narrative, so we did not fire Mr. Muir, the phrase voluntarily was always placed in snicker quotes by the media in recounting his leave. One of the symposium sessions yesterday was titled Free Speech and Equal Dignity. The session after this one is titled Free Speech versus Hostile Environment. These sessions point to a fine line that all of us face. How do we protect and uphold the principles of free speech while upholding civility and discourse? Let's acknowledge that the deteriorating political debate in our country and the divisive tenor of the discourse in the political campaigns contribute to our difficulties. Malice and vitriol have become the lingua franca for some people in America this fall. So what do we learn about these issues? I think one of the best solutions is to continue talking about them. To have a sustained open dialogue about the free speech issues we face. And this symposium is a great example of that. If we keep the dialogue going, then we'll be better prepared to face the free speech incidents and the crises as they arise. I also take six other lessons from these two examples. First, free speech is not costless. In both of these instances, the media firestorm was intense and unexpected. The intimidation of free speech in my estimation came from these reactions in the media firestorm and not from anything the university did or did not do. But in both cases, with both the basketball team and with Mr. Muir, the ferocity of the backlash was not expected. Second, there are consistent efforts to reframe individual speech as official speech. So, in the case of the basketball players, the argument was made that even though they were not in uniform, they still represented the University of Virginia, and therefore what they did was a form of official speech. In the case of Mr. Muir, he made his post on somebody else's Facebook site. But people were able to go and find his own Facebook homepage and it had a University of Virginia banner on it. By the way, that's not prohibited by our policy. And so the argument was made that this was, in some some way, official speech. Three, there is skepticism that learning occurs absent the coercion of free speech. So in the case of the basketball team, they're meeting with members of the Charlottesville Police Department soon, simply to have a dialogue with each other. Again, it's not coerced. It's an opportunity for learning and I think both sides embrace it. In the case of Mr. Muir, he spent a few days intensely studying black history including the history of the Ku Klux Klan. He notes this in his long letter of apology. We didn't force him to do that, he did that on his own. It was an example of his trying to learn more about the subject. Fourth, there are strong preconceived narratives about what is happening whether you define it as oppression or define it as political correctness. And all fact situations get distorted to fit that narrative. The basketball players must be anti-police, even though they said they weren't. The university must have acted in a punitive manner towards Mr. Muir, even though he didn't. No other motive can be conceived, such as giving a man receiving threats some breathing room before he has to go back in the classroom. Fifth, decapitation is the preferred solution. Take away the basketball scholarships. Fire Professor Muir. Fire the provost. Someone wrote to the Board of Visitors yesterday, what right does the provost have to speak on academic freedom? (laughs) And of course the durable call to fire me. I think these are uncreative non-solutions and antithetical to the purpose of the university. (laughs) And six, there is a profound skepticism of anyone who professes values. I will say that UVA is unusual among public universities in that we have a set of values that we stand for strongly, and we talk about a lot. You hear us talking about the values of honor, of giving back, of public service, Um, And, of course, the values that were expressed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. And it's an old theme in the United States to look for hypocrisy in anyone who professes values. It's the basis of a lot of the opus of Nathaniel Hawthorne, for example. So finding hypocrisy lends powerful force to any pre-existing narrative. So that means when anything happens at UVA, there is immediately an effort to look and see if we are not being untrue to our professed values and if we are not in some way betraying Thomas Jefferson. I will say that the university is not perfect, but I will say that we are still learning and that we are committed to the learning. And I think ultimately that's what Mr. Jefferson expected from us. Thanks for your attention.
1: Good morning. I'd like to first thank the Thomas Jefferson Center uh, for hosting this symposium, which I believe is important and timely. I'd also like to apologize for not being here last night. Fortunately, I had another commitment in New York City and just could not make it down in time. I'm delighted to be here today. I should note that I'm joined uh, this morning by my wife, Sharon, over here. Uh, (laughs) Sharon almost never comes to my uh, talks saying uh, after 28 years she had heard me enough. Uh, But so great was the draw of the University of Virginia uh, that she decided to uh, take the drive down I-66 this morning with me. And I should also note with some embarrassment that Sharon is a professional pollster, and I'm going to, me, the non-professional, will present some survey results in a minute. So uh, this may have repercussions in our own family. I think uh, the symposium is especially timely because there are some real problems which In universities and in the perception of universities uh, some of which uh, President Sullivan laid out I think eloquently and with great detail Uh, a lot of the discussion around what's happening with free expression on college campuses is incident driven as President Sullivan just documented because that's what gets the press and that's what college administrators have to deal with on a moment-to-moment basis, and social media no longer allows you to think about it until the next day. However, there are 4,000 colleges and universities in this country, and you can tell almost any story you want if you just draw incidents from particular places or those that bubble up into the news. I'll try to do something different. I think incident-driven discussions has to also be complemented by other forms of analysis because one of the biggest problems on college campuses, frankly, is what's not said. And most of my discussion, in fact, today will be that the real problem on college campuses is not graduation speakers being yanged or controversy around what professors said, but that there is now the censorship of silence. Part of this is that colleges and universities avoid controversy. After Ray Kelly, the former commissioner of the New York City Police Department, was booed off the stage at Brown University because he was one of the originators of the stop and frisk policy, I think several hundred colleges and universities across the country said, "Okay, we're not going to invite Ray Kelly because we don't need that kind of trouble. And what students do not talk about on college campuses today is part of the problem also. I think this is a real risk to universities and a real challenge, because your intellectual foundation is based on the courageous exploration of all points of view to get to greater truths. And I think we're challenged in that right now because of what people are often afraid to say. And finally, I think universities face real reputational risk, as President Sullivan just detailed, because there is a significant perception out there whether it's deserved or not, that universities and colleges are no longer bastions of free expression. Indeed, there is a significant perception in American society, fair or unfair, uh, that universities and colleges are in many ways the least welcoming to free expression in our society. That is a real problem in terms of future public support for higher education. I'll speak mostly from the museum survey of college student attitudes which we did a few months ago with the Knight Foundation the museum uh, which as uh, as I was introduced you heard about is one of the preeminent american institutions that promotes defends and explains the first amendment and the right of free expression we do that a variety of ways for more than a decade we've done an annual survey of attitudes towards the first amendment by surveying adults With all of the tumult on college campuses, a few months ago we decided let's survey college students specifically about the First Amendment issues that are broiling on their campuses. Unfortunately, we don't have the time series data that we have with the other survey, but it's interesting, and I should note, we oversampled on African Americans and to some extent Muslims so that we could get the particular attitudes of those students. The first thing we found is that, contrary to what many believe, there is enormous support for free political speech on campus. About 78 percent of college students that we surveyed, and I should note the survey was restricted to four-year institutions, and, of course, there are a lot of people who go to other types of institutions, but the survey, I think, says something important at least for four-year institutions but about 78% of college students, compared to only 66% of adults, believe that uh, universities should expose students to a wide variety of views, Okay, not what you normally hear. Um, And I think one of the lessons of this is that college administrators may not understand the strong support, not always vocally expressed, on the part of the vast majority of students for them to have an environment which is welcoming to people of all political points of view. Uh, and this should give the administrator solace when faced with controversies, that while there certainly may be vocal minorities who want a graduation speaker yanked or someone not to appear at a symposium, the overwhelming number of college students, far more than the adult population at large, believe that there should be a welcoming environment to a broader array of political speakers. That's not the end of the story, because students differentiate between political speech, outsiders coming in and talking about the great issues of the day, and how they talk to each other, and how the First Amendment issues play out on campuses themselves. 54% of college students believe that the current campus climate prevents people from expressing some things, and the majority appears to be okay with that. Okay? That's the first thing. So the students themselves perceive that they are self censoring for whatever reason. Second, the students have a problematic attitude, much more so than the adult population at large. to some First Amendment issues surrounding student controversies. We asked in particular, do you think that students should or should not be able to prevent reporters from covering protests that are held on college campuses? Among the adult population, only 21% said that the press should be restricted. However, among all college students, 28%, a statistically significant higher number, College students believe that the press can be kept off college campuses, something which is unconstitutional at public universities and deeply problematic at all universities. The breakdown is especially interesting. Among men, only 19% believe that the press should be restricted, but 38% of women, uh, 37% of women, believe that the press should be restricted. (laughs) White students, 24 percent, believe that the press should be restricted, but African Americans, 32 percent, believe that the press should be restricted. Uh, There's no statistical difference between Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. Um, But we also pick up in the other parts of the surveys considerable skepticism among the African American population, who we oversample. so we do believe we can say something statistically significant, Deep skepticism, in particular, whether their right to assembly will be honored on college campuses. Why do students believe that the press should be restricted? And I take this as a proxy for their attitudes more generally about conversation among themselves. They don't believe the press will always be fair to the protests. They believe that the protesters should be able to control their own narrative, to use the vocabulary of the day, or they believe that. Uh, people should be able to broadcast out their message without the press as an intermediary. A profound example of how social media has influenced this generation because at any time in the past, you would have needed the press to broadcast out your message. Now you don't. You can go directly to Twitter or uh, YouTube. Another important finding almost never discussed is that the First Amendment issue that students are actually most concerned about is accommodation of religion. 54% of college students believe that the US is not accommodating enough to people who want to practice another religion, Uh, although religious diversity, with a few exceptions, is almost never talked about in the diversity discussions that we have on college campuses. But the students are concerned. Finally, some observations about social media, which, as was said in the introduction, has dominated the nature of this discussion and has transformed the way we speak to each other and, critically, the way the students speak to each other. Yes, this is the millennial generation. Yes, this is the social media generation. But the students are unhappy with the conversation on social media. Less than half of all students believe that the dialogue on social media is civil. 74% believe that there is too much anonymous speech on social media, and African-Americans are even more skeptical of the quality of civility on social media than the population at large, even while using social media more often. Um, And so the students who converse with each other are unhappy, and I think this is part of a story that they self-censor, partially because the medium uh, allows loud voices, the extremes, to take over what could otherwise be a civil conversation. What are the lessons? As President Sullivan said, we need to draw some conclusions from all of this. I'll go for administrators, faculty, and students. For administrators, first, they should recognize that there is profound support, support for free political speech on campus. Um, that there are constituencies that they can turn to in times of crisis I also think that administrators have to meet students where they are as they say in student affairs and that is on social media and recognize that that's where the dialogue is taking place and the students aren't happy one of the things that drives me crazy especially as CEO of the museum is anyone over 40 or 30 who says "Well." it's uh, too complicated, or that's for the young people, or they know how to manipulate these devices, and we don't. The people who, suppo- who grew up with these devices, who grew up with social media, are profoundly unhappy about the conversation and dialogue that is occurring, and I believe would benefit uh, from some adult input. Uh, so far from abandoning the uh, social media conversation to students, I think administrators should be actively involved in uh, trying to educate students about how to have civil dialogues on social media and not censor themselves or others. Two examples which I thought were useful, useful for my days at Colgate. Um, at one particularly uh, tense moment on campus which was partially driven by the social media platform Yik Yak, which allows for anonymous uh, commentary by people who are geographically close to a university, the faculty took over Yik-Yak and posted things like, I hope you get enough sleep tonight because next week is exams, or uh, the library's open extra long tonight. And as academics should, they sign their names. And I think this was a teaching moment where faculty showed that you didn't have to use these platforms only for talking about who's the hottest on campus or whatever else uh, students do, sometimes insulting their friends and neighbors along the way. Uh, But that there was another manner of discourse, which was especially valuable. And I do think that colleges have to think about their social media strategy inward. Uh, most colleges and universities have social me- the social media guy or gal in communications, and they're tweeting out to the alums and the press all the great things about what's going on on campus. And that outward facing strategy is important. But I think administrators also have to develop an inward facing strategy for how they're communicating via social media and how they are leading the social media discussion and tone and substance on campus. Because frankly, that's what the students want. And hopefully, educating students on how they could use social media in a better way will eliminate some of this self-censorship. One of the things we instituted at Colgate first week during orientation was a session on digital etiquette and literacy where we asked the students, what are you trying to accomplish on social media? Not it's bad or it's good, but what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? To put it in millennial terms, what brand are you trying to establish? Uh, And those often led to thoughtful discussions. Second, I think the faculty has to use teaching moments to suggest that people can argue vehemently with each other and still respect each other. In a sad political season, one of the few posters that I really liked was one person who held up a sign at some rally that said, I disagree with you, but I know you're not Hitler. Um, Hopefully, we could do better than that. Uh, But that wasn't a bad start. I think the faculty has issues nationally with ideological homogeneity. We know in terms of registration in political parties, in terms of contributions to political parties, that there's not a diversity of political views on a lot of college campuses. And I'm not going to get into why that is at the moment, but I think it's incumbent on faculty, no matter what their own beliefs, to use teachable moments to show that adults, and therefore students, can have dialogues where people disagree with each other. Don't paper that over, but say we can still talk to each other. The brightest moment in this sad season, in fact, I thought was when Senator Bernie Sanders went to Liberty University. Now, Senator Sanders spoke at the very beginning and said, I know that you disagree with me, among other things, because he identified himself as a strong supporter of abortion rights and of marriage equality. And he said, despite the fact that I know you disagree with me on these issues, there are things we can talk about. And the students, many of whom saw Senator Sanders as an advocate for the murder of unborn children, and for disrupting long religious traditions that they believed him, gave him a civil hearing. There are far too few incidents like that, and I think it's both to Senator Sanders' credit and to the students and faculty of Liberty University that they engaged him in a way that showed we can still have dialogue in this country. And finally, for the students, I think we have to recognize that there are some profound First Amendment issues. And I think in particular, I'm concerned that students who feel that they're not fully empowered, underrepresented, African Americans, many women, do not believe, contrary to a previous generation, that the First Amendment rights are necessarily their avenue to greater equality and representation. That's a profound shift let's say the Civil Rights Movement, which utilized all five freedoms of the First Amendment uh, to pursue their noble goals. Uh, And I think the case has to be made especially uh, to people who feel that they are not fully represented, not fully empowered, that the First Amendment rights fully exercised are in fact their way to full participation in society. Lots more to talk about. Hopefully we can get that and get into that in questions and answers. Again, thanks so much to the Thomas Jefferson Center, and thanks to all of you for coming out and discussing these important issues.
3: Thank uh, you, John and Leslie, uh, and uh, thank you to the center uh, and the ACS and the Federal Society for inviting me. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. I was gonna begin in the spirit of the, the season by asking, who am I? Why am I here? But, but I realize that a lot of people are, are too young to remember the opening lines from Admiral Stockdale's vice presidential debate in, <laughs> in 1992. But I wasn't actually sure exactly why I was invited to this conference. As, as John mentioned, I'm now a law dean. I've been a, a dean at, at the University of Illinois School of College of Law for a year. Uh, I'm also a constitutional uh, law professor, and I like to think scholar. I'm not a First Amendment specialist like Leslie or Eugene Volokh. Um, I'm more of a First Amendment dabbler. Um, and I thought maybe it's because I've had deep experience with some other great public universities like, uh, that, that, like the uh, University of Virginia, has, has struggled in recent years with, uh, with coping with these, some, of the, some of these issues. Not just Illinois, um, which you may have heard had a big uh, episode... A year and a half ago, that ended up bringing down our chancellor. Um, a, a fellow named Steve Salida was given uh, was offered a job in the Native American Studies department, um, and uh, he then it was it was learned that he had a lot of intemperate tweets um, that many construed to be anti-Semitic uh, because they were uh, so uh, uh, pro-Palestinian, uh, and the Board of Trustees was was likely not going to ratify his appointment. Uh, And in Illinois, the Board of Trustees has to ratify all tenured appointments, not just deans and and high-level administrators. So the chancellor kind of withdrew the offer late in the day, and there were cries of academic freedom, and we were put on censure by the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors. um, And uh, the controversy and the uh, ensuing um, email uh, um, uh, disaster uh, ended up bringing down Chancellor Phyllis Wise. She, she didn't turn over all the emails related to this uh, episode in, in, uh, in re- response to some uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, so Illinois has struggled with this, and the University of California has struggled with these issues. I, I don't know if Eugene's going to talk about uh, this later, but uh, I know he's written about the University of California's microaggression policy um, uh, that the University Office of the President um, promulgated to give guidance and/or to threaten staff and faculty uh, who do certain things that uh, were considered insensitive. So, you know, I kind of am wearing three hats here. I'm I'm, I'm someone who grew up in a few public universities that that are facing these tr- problems. I'm an administrator now, and I've looked at these issues kind of as a constitutional scholar. So, I think I'll speak from all three of those perspectives as we go. The first thing I want to do is uh, is actually engage some of the things that were said yesterday. I go to a lot of panels and a lot of uh, conferences on the First Amendment, and people talk, but they don't really respond to each other. Often often there's not time. Uh, so I, I thought I'd use a little bit of my time to, to uh, comment on a few things that I heard yesterday. And I wasn't able to attend all the sessions, but I heard a lot of uh, insightful comments in the ones I did. So uh, Dahlia Lithwick made the big point that we can't lump together uh, issues that are really different from each other. So uh, inviting or disinviting uh, outside speakers is different than trigger warnings, which is different than microaggressions, which is different than student uh, 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 campus protests, etc. And I think she's right. We've got to be very clear about um, what problem we are looking at and what First Amendment free speech issues it raises, um, in part because people use terminology in this area to mean very different things. So you first got to make sure you're talking about the same thing, uh, and not just using labels um, in imprecise ways. And we're all guilty of that. Uh, President Obama, when commenting on Colin Kaepernick's protest, uh, the 49er quarterback, um, he, he mentioned uh, Kaepernick's constitutional right to, to free speech, to do this. And nobody was talking about the government punishing Kaepernick for this. There's no constitutional right at issue there. There's no state action. The question is whether the League or the, the, or the, the Niners should have done something to discourage this kind of, of uh, activity. Um, and yet, I think most people understood President Obama when he referred to the constitutional right of free speech to be using the First Amendment as a marker for a much broader cultural value we all have of tolerance for speech with which we disagree, and the idea that the, the, the answer to bad speech is more speech, not, um, not less speech. Um, so I do think we always got to get our terms straight and make sure we're, we're talking about the same things. Beyond categories and labels, I think facts matter quite a bit. Uh, I think we need to get more finely grained still. So I want to return to something that Susan mentioned yesterday, Uh, She mentioned a case from the late 80s uh, in which a federal district judge in Michigan struck down uh, Michigan's hate speech code. And she said she didn't get into the details, but I wanted to get into a little of the details. The policy as written, um, you know, on its face seemed pretty well structured. It It prohibited behavior that stigmatizes or victimizes individuals on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, sex, sexual orientation, et cetera, and that involved uh, threats or, or had the purpose and effect of interfering with educational um, participation or created an intimidating or hostile or demeaning environment and uh, sexual harassment was defined similarly. But then shortly after they adopted the code they promulgated uh, a guidance memo that identified examples of the kinds of things that fell within the prohibitions. And let me read to you some of the things. Um, Some of them are prescribable, and and I could see why you want to give warning that these things are problematic. A flyer containing racist threats in a residence hall. Well, a threat is unprotected speech. Whether it's racist or not, you can go after that. Um, Racist graffiti written on the door of an Asian student's study carol. Well, you can't really write graffiti on a carol anyway. That's, that's in, uh, unprotected conduct. And, and, and so when you combine this with that, and this is no longer pure speech, maybe you can prescribe that as well. But now we move to a male student remarking in class that women just aren't as good in this field as men, thus creating a hostile learning atmosphere, uh, atmosphere for, for female classmates. I don't know too many judges that would say that's not protected by the First Amendment. Students in a residence hall have a floor party and invite everyone on their floor except one person because they, sh- they think she might be a lesbian. We're now saying that the school can regulate who you invite into your room um, with respect to sexual harassment. It's sexual harassment to exclude someone from a study group because that person is of a different race, sex, or ethnic origin than you are. So South Asians can't get together and have a, 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 a study group that's based on South Asian experience. You can't tell jokes. It's, it's, it's harassment to tell a joke about gay men and lesbians. Doesn't matter what the joke is. doesn't matter you know what the context is. Um, you laugh at a joke about someone who's in your, who stutters in your class. So now laughing in response to someone else's bad, tasteless joke is prescribable. So there were a lot of examples in this guidance memo that I think clearly crossed over the line into protected speech. And that's part of why there's so much distrust of these kinds of policies in the first place. Because even when they're crafted at a, level of, at a high level of generality that seems attractive, there's always the suspicion that you're going after certain unpopular viewpoints and we're very worried about how these things are going to be applied on the ground. Now, does that mean you can't have any, the First Amendment doesn't permit any uh, regulation? Well, of course not. I think you can prohibit threats, harassment, as defined as kind of uh, targeted, insistent behavior, those things are, are, are prescribable. Uh, beyond that, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I, I, I go back to Susan's uh, discussion of the reasons we have free speech and the First Amendment in the first place. I'm not sure I trust government to know uh, what speech doesn't contribute to truth-seeking and or to democracy. So when someone uh, uh, utters in class that that he thinks that women aren't as good in STEM fields, I find that abhorrent, but I can't quite say that that's not part of truth-seeking and or related to democracy. Um, People might disagree, but I'm not comfortable uh, with government drawing those lines uh, uh, easily. Now, I say I'm not sure that there's no room for these codes, in part because I do think, and this goes back to a point Dahlia made, that we we should be very careful about the legal categories that we are invoking. And we talk about all these issues in in terms of the First Amendment. We might weigh equality as a competing value, but we don't identify equality in the Constitution the way we talk about the First Amendment. We don't say this is a conflict between the First and the Fourteenth Amendment. We say it's a conflict between something in the Constitution, First Amendment, and this abstract idea of equality or dignity when in fact, all of this stuff is about the 14th Amendment. UVA is not bound by the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. UVA is not Congress. UVA is bound by the First Amendment by virtue of the 14th Amendment that incorporates it against all states and localities. So all of this discussion should be about what does the First Amendment mean in the context of a 14th Amendment that applies it to state and local government, and the 14th Amendment, of course, is all about uh, racial equality and and, uh, the newly freed slaves. So I'm not 100% sure that there isn't room for some well-crafted policy that draws on the Fourteenth Amendment. You know, before uh, the University of Michigan's affirmative action policy, uh, uh, Grutter in, in Grutter versus uh, Michigan, a lot of people would have thought there's no room for an affirmative action policy that can survive that narrow window. But the court upheld one there, and I'm not sure that there's not room uh, for, for one here uh, uh, as well. Um, to the extent that it's hard to craft these policies, um, and that we have to tolerate a lot of speech that we really don't want to have to hear on campuses uh, and see things we really don't want to have to see, um, what can we do? Well, I think, you know, uh, Jeffrey pointed out that we have, as educators, tremendous opportunity to educate. And I think it's important not just in, in, you know, conferences and lectures, although I do try to bring in current events to my constitutional law classes, I think a lot of the most important instruction about how to communicate civilly and in a sophisticated way takes place one-on-one. It's in in your office when you're talking to a student and you can get a sense of where he or she comes from and why he or she feels what he or she is, and you can share your own background. You can say, well, you know, when I was in high school, this happened to me and this is how I felt. That's when the light bulbs go off, I think. So those settings are often more powerful than even these highfalutin conferences like like this one, which which have their place. All right, in my remaining few minutes, I wanna touch on um, a a, a concept that that John referred to, uh, and that's academic freedom, especially in the context of university professors. Um, It's often thought that that as professors, especially at public universities, we enjoy some special role to play in the First Amendment and that we're protected by some special academic freedom. Um, I'm not actually sure that we, public faculty, have it so good in this respect. And to illustrate that, I want to compare the free speech rights of public faculty to three other groups. Students, private faculty, and other public employees. I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear to me that students have more expressive rights than faculty do at public universities. Uh, I, I think, you know, if, if, uh, to going back to the microaggression policy at the UC, um, the UC defined microaggressions to include things like saying America is a melting pot uh, or that uh, the best person uh, should get the job. And if, if, it's, if, the, if a university tried to punish students or deter students from saying those kinds of things, I think no one would, everyone would say, of course they have a First Amendment right to that. But to the extent that they're, they're trying to direct faculty um, uh, uh, activities, uh, there's, there's more leeway for the employer to do that. And the reason is because they are our employer. And competing with the First Amendment's right to speak is the right of employers to, to accomplish their employment goals. So there's a long line of cases, um, Connick, Myers, Garcetti, uh, that say that employers can regulate speech of employees even when the employers are public. Um, with a pretty uh, uh, generous hand. Um, now, there's some question about whether Garcetti fully applies to public faculty. There's a, a bracket in the case um, that refers to this idea of academic freedom. But in my experience, every time the Supreme Court has gone back to look at ac- academic freedom as a constitutional matter, um, it, it doesn't usually, usually find too much. Um, the second comparison is between uh, public and private faculty. Here, too, I think, you know, if you, if you look at what the, the government could do to regulate faculty down the road at Duke, it's far less than what they could do to regulate faculty here at the university. If the, if the legislature of Virginia wants to tell the faculty at UVA what to do, they have a much greater leeway to do so than at a private school. So relative to our private counterparts, we actually have less, even though we work for the government. Um, and then third, and this one is the, the most counterintuitive, I think faculty have fewer expressive rights at public universities than non-faculty employees in a lot of ways. You would say, well, we're all employees, so shouldn't we at least be on a par with people who, who work in other elements of the university? And I'm not sure uh, for two reasons. One is there is inherently a content or, and viewpoint-based appraisal of people who do scholarly work. It's impossible to assess scholarship without assessing the viewpoint and the subject matter of what's being done. Some scholarship is not valuable because it doesn't talk about important things. And some scholarship is not valuable because it it takes positions that are not credible given scholarly norms. And so there's, the, the faculty are already in, a, in a, a, an arena where you, the, the, their bosses are having to make these determinations. If I, as a dean, I didn't think that the challenge to Obamacare under the Constitution in 2012, I didn't think it was a very strong constitutional argument. And uh, I, I didn't do this, but if I, as a dean, were to uh, decide not to extend an offer of employment to someone because their article laying out the, the argument wasn't very uh, good scholarship to me because I didn't the argument made sense. I'm not sure she has a First Amendment claim. Um, so, you know, so the fact that we are in the idea business opens us up to evaluation based on the content and sometimes the viewpoint of our ideas. That's not true for people who work for the university who are not engaged in, in the ideas. Secondly, and relatedly, what we do as professors is sometimes affected by our off-the-job activities. If a professor is a member of the KKK, she may not be able to do her job in the classroom um, in a way that a groundskeeper could be a member of the KKK and still mow a mean lawn. Um, the reality is, we have to engage our students. They have to find us credible. They have to find us accessible. They can't be afraid of us. They can't be uh, turned off by us and that too gives the, the government employer more leeway uh, uh, to regulate us. So, I think in a lot of ways, academic freedom is an idea that we, we talk about, but I'm not sure how much constitutional content there is to it. Um, I will say three, three things before I stop. One is, the Constitution is not the only game in town. A lot of times, academics are protected by custom, by tradition, by contract law, by, by regulation, by promises. So great universities promise to allow more leeway than the Constitution might require. And so whenever we're in a university context, we always have to be clear, and this goes back again uh, to something I think Leslie said, we've got to be clear, you know, what body of law we're looking at, what uh, what's doing the constraint. Sometimes it's not the Constitution, but it's, uh, it's a norm or a promise that's been made that's equally constraining. Second within the Constitution um, due process is an under-discussed value with respect to academic freedom. I tend to think of academic freedom not so much as a right to say what I want to say, but a right to know what's going to get me into trouble. Um, And so I think that the the university employers have to give clear guidance about what crosses lines, and you just don't want academics to be sandbagged, I think that's bad business, and at some point uh, uh, it violates the Constitution. And then finally, Um, I think academic freedom uh, or free speech among academics um, used to be very important in a different sense of the word free. And by this I mean the speech used to be very subsidized. We tend to think of freedom as freedom from government regulation. But if government is going to pay for your speech, that's another sense, an important sense in which it's free. Public university faculty get to speak um, freely because someone else is footing the bill. Um, and that's a very important uh, element of, of, of freedom, but it's one that unfortunately is becoming um, less meaningful in a world where states have defunded uh, public universities. And I think that people don't pay it as, a, as, a te- as much attention, but that is in some ways the bigger threat um, to research ambition and the proliferation of ideas that's out there is just that we're not providing the platform to do it as opposed to regulations that are telling us what we can't do. So with that, let me turn it back over to John.
2: Well, I bet everyone here joins me in thanking you for those three interesting substantive presentations. And we're going to ask for questions from the audience, but let me begin by asking whether any of you wish to respond to remarks of the others.
3: The, the only thing I want to, I've asked Jerry is, um, you know, the first big stat you gave about support for uh, kind of a broad, exposure to a broad range of ideas, did we drill down and, and kind of provide specific examples? Because, um, you know, I, I just don't know what they mean by broad. Um, you know, a lot of people in the academy think that the academy is very diverse. I tend to agree with you that it's not. Um, but we, again, I, I sometimes feel like I want to get more specifics uh, I, I, the analogy I would give is, in, in, in Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justices, everybody says they're a textualist, everybody says they're an originalist. Um, it's only when I ask them, well, did you agree with the majority or dissent in this case that I get a sense of, of what they really believe. So I'm wondering, do did we, did we have more uh, granularity?
1: Not, not this time around. Uh, it was a survey of students uh, who are, uh, in, many, in, in some significant ways, more diverse than faculty. Uh, and perhaps less willing to draw those nuances, uh, but don't have a definition. We didn't kind of test, you know, well, would you be okay with with, ah, with Ahmed Dinajan coming to campus? where He was the Iranian leader most associated with their genocidal pursuit of Israel's destruction. Would you be okay with a member of the Klan coming to the campus? We didn't test on that level.
0: And I think that's important because students don't know what they're not being exposed to.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. They know what they are exposed to, but they don't know that world out there that they might have been exposed to. Susan Russell.
2: All of our remarks are being recorded for posterity, so we'll <laughs> ask the speakers to wait till we can get a microphone in your hand.
0: Those were wonderful presentations. Thanks so much. I wanted to ask Jeffrey about another statistic, which was that 54% The student said campus climate prevents them from expressing some things, and that's a good thing. Um, Exactly how is that question phrased? Was it prevents them from expressing a political opinion or prevents them from saying anything that they might want, which would include shouting the N-word at a fellow student? It was more, it was not,
1: it didn't differentiate. I could could struggle and pull out the words, but the short answer is it didn't differentiate.
0: So doesn't that seem like a good thing on a college campus?
1: Uh, the, in the current context um, and the numbers, I, th- I think it's actually worrisome. I and mean, I, think, I think students, we hear anecdotally that it's not just etiquette. Uh, and I don't think students define etiquette as self-censorship. There's something more there. Look, I mean, the, the bigger picture, of course, is that college campuses are trying to do something which American society has largely abandoned, which is try to get, at least for four-year schools, try to get people uh, who are diverse to live together. Uh, American society has become more stratified in many significant ways, especially by income, and in certain ways by race. Uh, College campuses are trying to get people to live together, and deliberately so. That experiment has been abandoned in American society. is it a good thing that students think about, well, this might be offensive to someone? I, I think so. But I think reading the data and looking at what's going on, there's more there. Uh, that I think the to and fro of a kind of the uh, college campus discussion, which we expect, you know, unvarnished and undoubtedly naive and, and young opinions to be expressed, we're losing some of that uh, because of people's fear uh, about uh, being called out, not on legitimate etiquette terms only, but because they're not on the right side of whatever the issue is. So uh, I take your point. Uh, the survey data can become more specific, but I think there is an issue there.
2: Yes, on the right. <coughs> Thank
4: you. Uh, it... it It seems to me that one reasonable way to describe the events here last week with uh, Doug Muir, the lecture controversy, one reasonable way to describe it is that a UVA lecturer was hounded out of his classroom, at least for a week or so, uh, by a firestorm of criticism of what he said on on a social media site, criticism from students and others. Um, now, taking Dean Amar's comments to heart, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was any, anything done illegally. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a First Amendment violation. It doesn't even necessarily mean there was any threat to academic freedom in that. But you know, having said all of that, it seems to me that the saddest thing that's likely to be the legacy of this, depending, of course, on what happens next, are the three statements from university officials about what happened right when it happened. I'm speaking of the statement from the deans of the Darden School and the School of Engineering and the Provost. And My my criticism of what the Provost said is not that he spoke about academic freedom, it's what he said about academic freedom. In the context of those three statements, if you read them, the defenses of, quote, free, free speech, academic freedom, First Amendment, the defenses were lip service. The function of those statements all three of them was to say that a student being, a, a lecturer being forced to take academic leave is, it did not threaten academic freedom, did not squelch academic freedom, because what he said on the Facebook page was not, quote, consistent with university values and was not appropriate, and from the provost, did not contribute to uh, intellectual discourse and did not contribute to other people's voices. Now, whether there's any legal violation there or not, I'm, you know, I suspect not. But in the, in the context of this event, those, kind, those statements from three University of Virginia officials were definitely lining up on the side of saying, look, nothing untoward happened here. You know, a lecturer was forced out of his classroom by a firestorm of criticism. But you know, we didn't do anything wrong. And there's no threat to academic freedom. That said, Even if there was no legal violation of anything.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Well, I used to teach. um, I've got the mic, so I'm going to make a little speech. I used to teach at the FBI Academy, and one of the things I learned is that the most the people in this country who feel most put upon in terms of their free speech rights are police officers. And the reason for that is that for most of us, even public employees, there's a relatively sharp line between on the job and off the job. And the private part of one's life is more or less unregulated. For police officers, they they are subject to the following argument, which police departments make vigorously, that because a police officer requires the confidence of the community, that anything an officer does away from the job that calls into question his or her ability to deal with minorities or this group or that group, anything that calls into question the community's trust in the officer, therefore becomes fair game for discipline and regulation by the officer. Now I say all that because in the context of police officers, that is really fairly well established by the courts, that police officer conduct of an inflammatory or, or uh, extremely edgy, difficult nature can be the subject of sanctions, even if it's not directly related to the job. I want to ask our panelists whether you think that analogy applies to university professors.
0: Or do you want to first? Well, I, I might just say something in response to the comment here, which, which was very thoughtful. And I agree it's beyond the legal issues are larger ramifications. One of the immediate issues in the firestorm was to what extent is this official speech? It's kind of the the argument you just brought up about the off-duty police officer. Did this represent an official view because it was being said by somebody on the payroll? I think that the Dean's statements were immediately directed at saying it's not an official position. Um, and you know beyond that I think the Dean's also had their own uh, points of view that they wanted to express, and which I think they're allowed to express. The unfortunate thing was the firestorm gave nobody time for reflection or consideration, and it was extremely stressful on Mr. Muir. And so while I know that the meme is that he was forced out of the classroom, in fact, that was a choice that he made in part to kind of slow down events give him a chance to reflect on it
1: i can start on the police i'll give the political i'm a political scientist by training not a lawyer i'll give the political science view which is police are differentiated from most even public employees because they are the uh, instruments of legitimate violence of the state they carry a weapon oftentimes carry a weapon off duty that imposes certain responsibilities on them, which I don't think are analogous to other public employees, much less university professors. And I I think it would be a dangerous extension of the analogy to say uh, that a professor's speech can be regulated to ensure that they have credibility with their students. Frankly, I think more of students than that. I think that the credibility of professors is critical, but I think Uh, students uh, sniff out pretty quickly uh, uh, when the adults are behaving badly. Uh, And uh, I've often seen professors who have views which are not in accord with where the students are politically, but who have great respect because of their teaching ability, performance in the classroom and the
5: like.
3: So I would say, as a matter of educational policy, it saddens me to some extent that someone had to take a leave, albeit a volitional one, um, that uh, that we couldn't kind of have continued uh, in the normal course and just talk about these issues, uh, even though there's obviously um, a vehement reaction to, to the, the racist thing that he said. Um, but I will say, and this goes back to something President Solomon said, you know, the university has... Again, as a matter of policy, in addition to uh, uh, as a matter of law, they have an interest in articulating a position so the world knows where they stand on things. Um, The the president talked about how UVA is somewhat unusual and that it has a set of values that it believes in and that it wants to promote. So I don't think there's anything inappropriate by higher-ups at a university saying, not only did that person not speak on behalf of the university, that person spoke something that's antithetical to what this university stands for. I don't think there's a problem with that, even if the effect of that is to contribute to the firestorm, as you put it, uh, that ends up uh, resulting in, in some volitional um, decision to, uh, to uh, take a break. Um, you know, governments, governments speak all the time. And universities are speakers. When we talk about academic freedom, it's always a complicated question. Are we talking about the freedom of the individual faculty member? Um, Why is that person entitled to freedom uh, to speak and not the the dean or the provost or the chancellor who's also uh, representing the institution? So that's the first point. Um, To go to to John's question, uh, I do think it's a little bit more complicated than than Jeffrey indicated. Um, As a matter of prediction, I think courts will... Allow the analogy, if you will, um, and they will they'll, they'll recognize that out of uh, out of the building conduct. Um, does affect the fitness uh, or the ability to do the job as a professor in the same way that they recognize that now with students in high school who post Facebook uh, postings and other social media that disrupts what happens in the school. You can be punished, uh, uh, according to some courts, for things that you do as a student outside of school grounds when it when it affects what happens at school. Um, You know, Again, this is maybe just because I'm an administrator now. If I have somebody... Let's, let's say they're not a tenured faculty member, but a, a lecturer. And that person is not getting any students in her class or his class. No one's signing up for his or her classes. I'm not going to renew the contract because no one's taking the class and I can't spend the money. And it doesn't really matter that much to me whether they're boycotting her because they don't like something she did off the job. Um, I've got to run a school. And so at some point... Um, after some period of time, the, the the effect on your ability to do parts of your job may be, uh, may be uh, so great that you can't avoid taking them no, into account.
1: No, I agree that if no one will take your class, you shouldn't be hiring uh, that lecturer. I'm saying that I don't believe that uh, professors, especially off-campus comments, will drive those attendance issues. Just as it's one of the great surprises when you talk about the teaching evaluation literature, uh, that there is no correlation between average grade in a class and the evaluation of a teacher. That's a well-understood uh, but widely disbelieved. That's fund. because we require the
2: evaluations before the grade. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Well,
1: the, uh, the, the, that's in, stupid. The, not, the inverse not. of blind grade? <laughs> not, not really, but, uh, but <laughs> I think students... I think... Um, I think that students will attend classes for more complicated reasons than off-campus behavior.
2: I could, I couldn't tell if you had your hand up. Please do. Uh,
6: so uh, it's it's an interesting question. I wanted to to, to tie into this issue about uh, uh, whether you could say you know we're going to fire this professor because he's saying things that are that students find to be sufficiently off-putting that uh, uh, that. Uh, you know, we just don't don't want want them here. Wasn't that issue kind of hugely discussed in the 50s and 60s? Right? Here are all these communists. Sometimes, while our boys were out fighting against communism, they you know sometimes they might deny it. Sometimes they may even admit it. They're in favor of violent revolution, which will lead uh, the uh, the uh, uh, capitalist classes to be lined up against the wall and shot. Uh, there are people who were refugees from communism. Where parents, for example, uh, but uh, also Cubans and such. And, and you know, the many universities uh, said, look, you know, why would we want to have these communists who are, maybe they're not yet uh, running out of students, but independently, you know, I, we feel they lack credibility with our students, or at least some of our students, maybe the veterans in in class, or just maybe people who believe Strongly believe in America, and here these people are saying all these un-American things. That was a commonplace argument. So the question is, I mean, I suppose one could say, look, yes, if somebody says racist things or anti-Muslim things or whatever else, well, then they lose the confidence of the students. But doesn't that suggest that sort of the people who were saying the same thing about communist professors in the 50s and 60s, that they should be fired, that they were right too, Or, or maybe both were wrong?
3: Well, I would say a few things. First, you know, again... We have to be clear in our in whether we're talking about a constitutional problem or an educational policy problem. And and as as a matter of educational policy, I would not ever argue in favor of a university uh, um, cutting someone loose uh, lightly for the for those reasons. My recollection of most of the cases in the '50s, and you, we can talk about this later, was not one where the university made a case of of unfitness and you can't really do the job because of this. It was more a bald viewpoint-based um, litmus test that the, the public universities were implying. So I think if you had a track... If you had, it's like a lot of these things. It's like, it's like Tinker versus Des Moines. You can't just assume that there is going to be disruption. But if there is disruption, then you may be able to restrain some speech that you otherwise couldn't. Um, but I don't think any of those cases were in the procedural posture in which they came up really posed the question that, that you're asking now.
6: So if somebody was wise enough to to say, well, look, you know, we need to build a factual predicate. So we're not just going to say fire this person because they're... Uh, because they're a communist, what we're going to do is we're going to have some protests. We're going to, because we, we're re- looking ahead at the tea leaves, uh, we're going to uh, send some messages. Maybe we'll send an anonymous thread or two. Uh, and we're going to talk about how a bunch of students now feel uncomfortable and that feel that they're in a hostile environment as relatives of veterans or as patriotic Americans in the classes. Once you do that, then it's okay?
3: I don't know how I would react to that if I were a judge, but if I were predicting, I would not rule out that kind of reasoning as uh, 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 one on which a court would uphold even a public university's decisions.
2: Well, I apologize uh, if I started this down a rabbit hole. I just wanted, I just wanted to note that today there is a, at least a large segment of American society that is subject to regulation on the, on the grounds that I outlined. And who presented? Other questions in the back? Yes, sir. They're going to bring you a microphone. Mm -hmm.
5: Professor Jeffries, I think you left out one of the most critical roles of the college president, and that's public relations. And I think the example of Mr. Muir is a perfect one to be discussing that question. Because there is something of value in the First Amendment to spontaneous speech. We do not want people to sit around and think about the right answer. We'd like to know what's in their gut. And that's what is reflected by Mr. Muir, whose comments, and I think the, most, the worst part of his comments, were his ignorance, or claimed ignorance, that he didn't know that the Ku Klux Klan was a violent organization. Just not believable. But when the university put out its first statements, they didn't say that Mr. Muir volunteered to take a leave of absence. They said that he agreed to take a leave of absence. One agrees to a proposition being made by a third party. That is not a voluntary act. It may be voluntary to agree, as in contract law, but we seek a meeting of the minds, but you don't agree to something, as it, you don't initiate something and then call that agreed. So later the university changed it to he volunteered, which I saw as part of the public relations effort. But more importantly, that and I will cite Mr. Herbst's, I think, comment about uh, that universities avoid conflict that the real i think squelching of free speech here was of students because as i see it from the public relations point of view of the university they did not want students to have a focal point for protest and for the exercise of free speech and so therefore it served the university interest in avoiding controversy by having him leave that job at least for a week and then and given the temporal relationship between his apology and the decision to reinstate him, if that's the proper word, one has to suspect that there was a correlation simply because of that temporal relationship. And this is a great concern to me. Uh, I think Mr. Muir should not have been, uh, and I don't want to use the word forced out, I don't even think he should have been told to leave. I find his remarks absolutely uh, disgusting. And also one, another point that I tried to make yesterday we, that the panelists continually refer, and I, maybe it's an academic question versus, say, the litigator, as I am, to civility. Well, civility means politeness. Civility may also mean respectfulness. But if somebody comes in the room to me and says, I'd like to reinstate slavery, I would like to reinstate a fascist state, I have no reason to be respectful of that person. And I have no reason to be nice to that person or polite to that person. And we can have a vigorous public debates without niceness and without politeness dictating the terms under which we have that debate, which also squelches the spontaneity of that debate.
2: Thank you. Can you bring a mic to...
7: Uh, thank you very much. I had a question um, uh, for Professor, or rather for, um, for President Sullivan in thinking back on something Mr. Herbst said, which was about the university uh, faculty and administration uh, looking inward, not necessarily outward with its communications. And you were specifically referencing social communication, social media. Mm-hmm. But but in thinking of um, how a university does that, how faculty do that, how administrators do that, sort of that inward communication in a free speech context. And uh, UVA, of course, had a, uh, long before the uh, situation with uh, Professor Muir, a much more high-profile controversy on free speech regarding the Rolling Stone article. Um, And I thought the university... um, Personally, I thought the university did an excellent job in terms of its inward communications at that time. Uh, but I, I'm curious what lessons were learned in terms of how to foster a discussion that was uh, pr- productive, uh, but also controversial and difficult um, in the midst of that within the university community. Sort of what was the administrator's role, what was the faculty's role in not directing that debate, not trying to squelch that debate, but allow it to to move forward as it needed to?
0: Sure, well, I, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Rolling Stones story, we were, we were managing a couple of things together, and one of my foremost concerns was physical threats to various students. So we had a violent attack on one of the fraternity houses. We had credible information that there was likely to be more such attacks. So one issue we were working with was, we don't want anybody hurt in this. That's, that's not what this is about. That was one of the reasons that I asked the fraternities to suspend just their social activities for two weekends, Thanksgiving weekend, the weekend during exams. Um, and the fact that fraternity, uh, one fraternity and sorority not affiliated with the university, so not subject to our fraternal order agreement, voluntarily did this, tells you what the atmosphere was like, the sense of fear. So that was one of the things we were dealing with. The second one was just, what is the truth here? Because what we believed to have been the case here, the information we had, wasn't very much like what was being reported in Rolling Stone. And so, you know, we were questioning, you know, have we misunderstood this situation? You know, how did this happen? And so there was, there was a lot of gathering of people who would had some relationship to try and figure out who knew what about this case. You may recall that the first, that morning when the Rolling Stones story came out, my first call was to Tim Longo, our chief of police, and I said, Chief, there's an allegation here of a crime that's been committed in Charlottesville. I hope you will investigate it. Well, one of the reasons I did that was because we had access to information we knew we couldn't make public because of FERPA. But he could make it public in his investigation, and he did. And you know, one of those facts was that we had taken Jackie to the police within 24 hours of the report. And a number of other things like that didn't show up in the Rolling Stone account. So one of the things we were doing was just trying to figure out what was true. Um, and then there was obviously a lot of you know, fear among students about does this mean that women are not safe at the university? Does this mean that the university does not care about how various social groups interact, Uh, you know, what is the university's role versus what's the criminal law, how do we understand Title IX, and so on, so it was a matter of pulling together cascading layers of people with information to try and get closer to the truth of the story. It's fair to say it took months. Um, This was a case in which investigative journalism was also very helpful because essentially the story was unwound by another journalistic source Um, And then subsequently, the Columbia School of Journalism was hired by Rolling Stone to investigate how they had done their journalism. So there were lots of different layers here of trying the fundamental problem, getting the truth. Um, In the end, although, you know, one fraternity suffered, you know, substantial damage to their house, we ended up not having any individuals physically harmed. We had other kinds of harm that, you know, are still with us and are still being dealt with. Um... So there are a lot of scars and a lot of, you know, a lot of remaining um, mistrust and irritation and pain about the Rolling Stone story. And I'd be lying if I didn't say there were. But that was how we tried to approach it in terms of safety first and information next.
2: We have time for one question. Please. There you go.
8: There's an elephant in the living room on this uh, topic, uh, free speech and academic freedom, and that is the relationship between corporate funding of research and these issues. There have been some several recent discussions on this in the New York Times, one involving a professor from uh, the University of Florida, Gainesville, where he maintained that his statements on topics of his concern to him were entirely independent science and it came out that there was a connection that he had with corporations and that these were shaping the things that he was saying and there are several other similar situations like that that have been going on and they do discredit academia seriously and I'd like to see if the panel would like to discuss this aspect of the issue. Thank you.
3: Well, I'll just say briefly that, you know, my last remark from the podium about how academic freedom is less free than it used to be at public universities because the public isn't paying for it as much. It it naturally leads to more and more of these issues. I don't know that that this raises a constitutional problem. Um, uh, You know, I'm not I'm not I don't think that public universities are uh, are constitutionally disempowered from accepting um, uh, you know money from from corporations to fund research but I think that's the, the consequence I mean if you if somebody's got to pay for it either it's going to be tuition dollars or an endowment or state legislative allocations or it's going to come from somebody else
1: yeah it's right it's, it's, it's It's a potential issue and one that can be solved, I I think. I mean, I've solicited money from corporations for fundraising, for research. I've solicited money from foreign governments uh, for uh, educational programs on campus. I went to Beijing and uh, made the case for a Confucius Institute at Miami University when I was provost. Uh, And there's been a lot of discussion of those. Uh, I went to Beijing with no illusions uh, that this was anything that this was in part an exercise of Chinese soft power, but I was also uh, very keen on the opportunity to educate Miami students and high school students in southeast Southwest Ohio on Chinese language, an opportunity they wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, we were fully transparent, uh, according to the Ohio Revised Code. Every single piece of correspondence between us and the uh, Chinese authorities was available to the public, or uh, you didn't even have to write a letter. You could just call up and get it. Uh, so I think if there's transparency uh, and uh, if people are honest about where they're getting their funding, which I think is always important,
0: then I think these issues can can be solved. But they are a potential problem. I do think one of the solutions has been robust research ethics courses, which um, almost all researchers now take on a regular basis, in which issues of... Um, full disclosure of your sources of funding and so on is absolutely expected. Um, In the medical field, you can't publish without disclosing the sources of funding so that people can judge for themselves whether this might have influenced your view on the data that you eventually put out there. I think that plus uh, just the general availability of data uh, and the ability for continuing uh, critique in the scientific journals is one of the things that helps us. I do worry about this the most in the medical field because of the literal life and death ramifications of having, say, a verification of the efficacy of a drug, which in fact is harmful. Uh, And I'll tell you that, at least here, these issues are regularly debated and discussed by researchers, certainly in medical school, but also in biomedical engineering and, and other areas. And I think training the next generation of researchers to be sensitive is one of the things we do. On the other hand, I will say that corporate support is very important in some sectors of the university where there is no government support, uh, but where there is still interest in doing research.
2: We convene again in 15 minutes. Let me sign off by saying how much I admire and appreciate the candor and the thoughtfulness and the pertinence of these remarks. Thank you for your time and for your presentation.